This is a Rabble Podcast Network show. New voices in your head. It's Radio Free Radio. Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for April 8th, 2010. We're at CanadianDimension.com and we're broadcasting from UMFM. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. On today's program, I'll be speaking to Barbara Legault, who is part of the young feminist movement called Rebel, and the recent Bill 94 in Quebec and the Niqab. I'll also be speaking to David Noble, whose defamation suit against York University has become a symbol of the fight for academic freedom. And I'll have a conversation with Stephen Staples about Canada's ongoing role in Afghanistan. That and much more here on Alert Radio. And now the alert headlines for April 8th, 2010. The health impacts of mercury poisoning in Grassinero's people are worse now than in the 70s, say the shocking results of a newly translated health study by Japanese mercury expert Dr. Harada. The study is being released on the 40th anniversary of when Ontario first banned fishing on the Wabagoon River due to mercury contamination by the Dryden paper mill upstream. The study finds that Health Canada safety guidelines are too low to protect people from the cumulative long-term health impacts of low-level mercury exposure, which is now ubiquitous worldwide due to industrial pollution from sources such as coal-burning power plants. Students and faculty at the First Nations University of Canada in Saskatchewan have begun a live-in, refusing to leave the university until the federal and provincial governments restore their combined $12 million in funding to the school. Both governments cut funding, citing concerns about financial and administrative mismanagement. The Federation of Saskatchewan Indian Nations, in partnership with the University of Regina, has established a transitional board to address governance concerns that go beyond the requirements set out by the two governments. While last-minute government funding allows students to continue their studies until August, the long-term future of FNU is still in doubt. Jim Turk, head of the Canadian Association of University Teachers, called the last-minute funding announcement a smokescreen. Quote, the federal government knows the money it is giving will not allow the university to survive, he said. The federal government case against Ottawa terror suspect Mohamed Harkat appears to have suffered a significant blow when a document was introduced in court showing that his reputed associate, Abu Zubadai, actually had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. Even more surprising, the document, which quotes U.S. court filings declassified last week, shows that Zubaida, once believed to be one of the top leaders in al-Qaeda, was not even a member of the terrorist group. If Zubaida has no ties to al-Qaeda, as now appears to be the case, a large chunk of the case against Harkat is under question. Barrick Gold, the world's largest gold mining company, successfully pressured Talon Books into cancelling an upcoming book investigating the actions of Canadian mining companies. Imperial Canada Inc., 
legal haven of choice for the world's mining industries, was still in the manuscript phase when Barrick Gold sent legal notice demanding the book not be published and that all documents relating to the company be handed over. The collective work was to focus on Canada's role as a tax and regulatory haven for the world's mining companies. Authors of Imperial Canada included the three writers of Noir Canada, a critical look at Canadian mining companies in Africa, who are currently being sued by Barrick Gold and mining company Banro. In northern British Columbia, a coalition of Indigenous nations has issued a declaration barring the construction of the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline project from crossing their territories. The 1,170-kilometre pipeline would link the Alberta tar sands to a port in Kitimat, B.C. The oil would there be loaded onto supertankers bound for ports in China and the United States. Critics claim the project presents a threat to ecosystems along its entire path, including the Great Bear Rainforest, more than a thousand rivers, and the northern B.C. coast. WikiLeaks has posted a video on its website which it claims shows the killing of civilians by the U.S. military in Baghdad in 2007. The website's organizers say the footage comes from cameras on a U.S. Apache helicopter. This has now been confirmed by the U.S. Army itself. They say they decrypted it but would not reveal who gave them the footage. The video shows a street in Baghdad and a group of about eight people whom the helicopter pilots identify as armed insurgents. Two journalists working for Reuters were killed on the day the incident took place in July 2007. A spokeswoman for the news agency said they were not sure if the individuals in the footage included those two Reuters journalists. The WikiLeaks cite campaigns for freedom of information and posts leaked documents online. In Afghanistan, U.S.-led forces have admitted to killing two pregnant Afghan women and a teenage girl during a nighttime raid on February 12th. Afghan investigators told the Times of London U.S. Special Force soldiers tried to cover up the killings. U.S. forces reportedly dug bullets out of their victims' bodies, then washed the wounds with alcohol before lying to their superiors about what happened. One of the women killed was a pregnant mother of 10, and another was a pregnant mother of 6. Initially, NATO military officials suggested that the women were stabbed to death or had died by some other means hours before the raid. Afghan President Hamid Karzai has twice threatened to quit politics and join the Taliban if the West continues to pressure him to enact reforms. Karzai issued the threat during a private meeting with Afghan lawmakers last week. People at the meeting said they thought Karzai's comments were aimed at hardline members of parliament. The comment is the latest in a string of outbursts that have drawn criticism from foreign backers. Last week, Karzai accused the UN and the international community of carrying out a vast fraud as part of a plot to deny him re-election. Russia may have sold weapons worth more than $5 billion to Venezuela, Prime Minister Vladimir Putin has said in the wake of his visit to Caracas last week. The deals include a $2.2 billion seven-year loan that Moscow extended to Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez last year. The U.S. has previously expressed concern at Russian arms sales to Mr. Chavez, a longtime adversary of Washington. Last November, Mr. Chavez told his troops to prepare for war with neighboring Colombia to counter a planned increase in the number of U.S. troops based there. 
South African President Jacob Zuma is calling for calm following the murder of a white supremacist leader named Eugène Terblanche. Terblanche was a longtime supporter of the apartheid government and an advocate for the creation of an all-white republic within South Africa. The killing comes 10 weeks before South Africa hosts the World Cup. Police say the killing was carried out by two farm workers over a wage dispute, but supporters of Terre Blanche claim it was racially motivated. And those are the alert headlines for the week of April the 8th, 2010. And now for Around the Left for the week of April the 8th, 2010. On April 13th, join Jose Martinez, B.C. Holmes and Todd Gordon at the Centre for Social Justice in Toronto for a public forum on the unfolding events in Honduras and Haiti. Both countries have been at the forefront of Canadian and American intervention in the Americas. The discussion begins at 7 p.m. In 2003, the Liberals were elected in Ontario on the promise of change. Those empty promises did nothing to end poverty. For poor people, there is no difference between McGuinty and Harris. Same program, different facade. And now, things are about to get even worse. Meet at the Allen Gardens Park, Sherburne and Gerard in Toronto on April the 15th to demand a decent income and a future free of poverty. A free meal will be provided. Meet at the park at noon. Is humanity inherently unsustainable? This is the question that William Rees will attempt to answer at a public lecture in Vancouver on April 15th. Dr. Rees is a faculty member at UBC and the originator of the Ecological Footprint. The lecture will be held at the Unitarian Church of Vancouver, Oak Street and 49th Avenue and begins at 7.30 p.m. The film The Women of Bruckman follows the struggle of the seamstresses at Bruckman's clothing factory in Argentina to reorganize their factory on a self-management model after the owners abandoned the operation. The name Bruckman's went from being a symbol of worker exploitation to being a site of revolutionary labor participation. The film will be screened at the Bloor Cinema in Toronto on April the 15th. Tickets are $10 at the door and the show begins at 6.30 p.m. Home Safe Now is a documentary film that examines the housing crisis in Canada as an expression of the increasing economic and job insecurity that has devastated the manufacturing sector in Toronto and throughout southern Ontario. A free public screening of the film will take place April 19th at the North York Central Library in Toronto. A Q&A will follow and the screening begins at 7pm. And that's Around the Left for April 8th, 2010. Last week, the news from Quebec was about the niqab. Quebec's Bill 94 would refuse government services, public employment, and most medical care to Muslim women whose face is covered by a veil, the niqab. Concealing your face violates our values, Quebec Premier Jean Charest has declared, and he has invoked gender equality in defense of his bill, catering to feminist opinion that regards this mode of dress as oppressive. Apparently, four out of five Canadians agree with him that veils should be banned. This week, the news out of Quebec is all about Jean Charest's budget. It established a new user fee on health care and increased other fees. To discuss these issues with us, Alert contacted Barbara Legault, who speaks for the young feminist movement called Rebelle. Here she is on the phone from her office in Montreal. Hello, Barbara. How are you today? I'm really good. Thank you for joining us here at Alert. I'm going to start right off by asking you what you think uh, when you see a woman hiding her face behind a veil. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, um, for me, as a feminist, as a radical feminist, it is obviously seen um, as a symbol of oppression of women. 
but as well, I consider high heels and plastic surgery and sexualization of women's body and the commodification of our body as other symbols of, of oppression of all women. And uh, I really don't think that the ban is going to do anything good for these women. It's not going to help them. It's not going to support their emancipation. It's not recognizing their right to choose. Um, so should we, like, if we ban uh, women wearing the niqab from accessing public services, should we as well ban, like, women who have, who have had plastic surgery um, from accessing these same services? So I personally strongly believe in, and I think the feminist movement fights for the freedom of choice in all matters for all women and the right to self-determination. So for me, um, having the choice is the key. And while the veil is to me a symbolic and religious manifestation of women's oppression, I respect women's freedom of choice, of religious views and practices. And so, Barbara, let's talk about the word on the street. Do you think most people are in agreement with your, your words or... Are most people uh, <laughs> against what you're saying? Well, not quite. <laughs> Public opinion is, I think, uh, actually the reasonable, reasonable accommodation discussions and debates and the commission we had here in Quebec a few years ago, um, Commission Taylor-Bouchard, you might have heard of it, um, unveiled this really latent and blatant racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia in Quebec. And I think it shocked quite a lot of progressive folks here in the feminist movement and outside the feminist movement and all left-wing left uh, movements because uh, we kind of always had this um, idealistic idea of Quebec, you know, thinking, that, oh, we're so, you know, open and blah, 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 blah. Oh, God, so much racism going around. So basically, wow. um, yeah, the word on the street, I think, is, um, well, obviously divided. There are a lot of people who disagree and say that it's a human rights violation um, to prevent somebody on the basis of the fact that uh, she's wearing a niqab to access public services that should be free and accessible to anyone and everyone. Um, but I think in the public opinion, like most of the people would say, oh, that's good, you know, we should be influenced, we should not let our culture be influenced by these Islamic terrorists and radicals. So obviously, like, after, uh, after 9-11, um, there's a lot of increase in Islamophobia, and I think we can see that in that bill. Okay. And so what about the feminist movement? I know you touched on it, but obviously you're a radical feminist. Mm -hmm. What about the feminists that maybe aren't so radical? What is their thought on this? Mm -hmm. Is it divided or...? Um, Yes and no. I, I'd say that there's actually a pretty strong political unity in our interpretation, because I worked at the Quebec Women's Federation for the last seven years. I, okay. just, um, I just left the organization in last November, and there was a huge debate and huge discussions around these issues with the members and, and general assemblies and stuff. And the Quebec Women's Federation is actually my position as well, okay. uh, which is no obligation, no ban. So basically, the Muslim feminists are our allies in this, Right. And um, for us as feminists, we say that all religion oppresses women and aims at the reproduction of male domination. So would it be Islam, Buddhism, or Christianity, or Judaism? And the danger is to, um, you know, refuse access to services for, the, for these women who, are, who, who need these services. So not only it is a violation of human rights, but it's also putting their security and their health in danger. Um, yeah, so that's, I think, like, basically the position of the Quebec Women's Federation, which is the biggest feminist organization in Quebec. It's an umbrella group, which uh, has about 160, 200 uh, group members and a lot of individual members as well. 
Okay, so let's talk a little bit. We're going to shift gears a bit. Still out of Quebec, another news item, uh, the Chere budget. Yep. Let's talk about that. First off, what does it do that's created such a stir among Quebecers? Mm-hmm. Um, actually, if you, uh, if you let me, I would like to link, just make a little uh, re- link between the, what we just talked about sure, and, of the course. Sure. and the budget. Um, of course. It's not direct link, but... Uh, what I'd like to say as well, just to conclude on the niqab, is that uh, for me, um, the biggest threat to our security as women doesn't come from uh, women wearing the niqab. It comes from our government. It comes from capitalism. It comes from patriarchy. It comes from racism. All these systems of oppression are the real threat to our security. So, um, And that was shown really, really clearly with the recent uh, Charest budget. So um, what is in that budget? Why is it causing such a stir in Quebec? Um, well, I'm going to maybe point out, like, the, you know, make a synthesis of the main aspects of the budget. Sure. First of all, well, in, in general, we can say that it's an in, like there's raises of several fees. First, and maybe the one that's been talked about the most and denounced the most, is a, a new annual contribution or annual fee of $200 that like that comes through income tax that would go directly as a franchise to the healthcare system, so that is uh, clearly the end of the free public healthcare system in Quebec, the end of it because every year starting in 2012 we'll pay $200 per year. Everybody who has a revenue over $15,000, a 15 yeah $15,000 will have to pay that healthcare tax. Um, it is not a progressive uh, vision of income tax. It's clearly discriminatory. It's a clearly a privatization of the system, and we are strongly denouncing it. Another aspect, 2% increase in the provincial um, good and services tax. So right now it's at 7.5%, and by 2012 it will be at 9.5%. So another aspect, increase of uh, tax on gas, $0.03 cents per liter. Another aspect, big, 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 major aspect. Uh, um, we, we would say, if I if I make a literal translation, I would do a defreeze of uh, tuition fees, so a raise of tuition fees in 2012. Um, another major, major aspect, raise in the fees of uh, electricity. Um, in four years, we're going to have we're going to pay 15 percent more for our electricity here in Quebec. And this is for individuals and families. It's not for companies necessarily right. only, right? It's okay. for everybody. Um, a few other things just to conclude on this synthesis. A freeze in the, I don't know how to say it in English, but a freeze in the wage bill or aggregate employment earnings okay. of the civil servants. So that means that basically every time somebody um, uh, leaves for retirement, uh, actually every two people leaving for retirement, uh, only one of them will be replaced. So that means a lot less services uh, from the government. And also they will merge institutions like state institutions and state um, organizations and stuff. So that all that means a lot less services. And basically the Charest government and uh, the finance minister here, Bachan, said that um, 7% of the contribution to, uh, to that, that whole, like all the state revenues and government revenues will come from companies. And 31% will come from individuals. So obviously everybody was like, well, that's unfair, right? right. And then, uh, but the government says, oh, but we're making the biggest effort because the government itself is going to contribute 62%, right? But that means less services, less access to services, um, privatization of some services, and closing down of some um, 
institution and as feminists we're we're fear that there might be attacks on the our li- our provincial status of women okay. uh, institution okay so basically just to conclude on the budget maybe i'd say that um it's a it's an attack like this budget is clearly an attack on the poor an attack on the working class an attack on women students and our healthcare system and it's the end of free public health care in Quebec. So let's talk a little bit. I mean, we have a lot of information to cover and we've got a few minutes left. So yep. what about the opposition? What, are, what have they been up to and, and who's leading it? Uh-huh. Well, obviously, the Parti Québécois and definitely Québec solidaire um, are extremely like vocal about their opposition to the budget. Um, they've been, uh, you know, doing, um, they've been talking to the media, doing press conferences and everything to um, make it clear that they object, they oppose this, uh, this budget. Um, obviously, Quebec Solidaire is our political party, which is at the most uh, to the left of the political spectrum. And then the Parti Québécois is a pretty, like, right, center-right. But still, uh, they're more to the left than the actual uh, government, which is formed by the Liberal uh, Party here in Quebec. So, uh, yes, they're being really, really critical. And actually, Quebec Solidaire, last, last week we had an extremely uh, big demonstration in the streets of Montreal on April 1st, which was against privatization and uh, the increase of fees. That was called for about three months before the budget. Okay. But with the budget happening, uh, and like the news of the budget on Tuesday, it probably just doubled the people like that were in the streets. We were at least... 20,000 people on the streets last Thursday in Montreal. And uh, there's been calls for other actions coming. There's uh, International Workers' Day on uh, May 1st and should be another big uh, moment for mobilization and to fight the Shari government and their budget. Okay, and you touched on raising fees, so we got about mm, 45 seconds. What's being offered as an alternative to raising fees? Or, Barbara, Mm -hmm. is there an alternative? 45 seconds, here we go. Yeah, of course there is alternatives. I think that the main thing that I can say in 45 seconds or uh, 35 is uh, <laughs> to uh, get the money where it, where it actually is. Like the people are getting poorer, but the companies are getting richer. And so that's where, like, that's where we should tax and that's where we should get the money. There's been an increase. Like in 1963, individuals were paying 45%. Of, of taxes of their like uh, they contributed for 45 percent of all the taxes and companies 55 percent in 2003 that ratio was 80 percent for individuals and 20 percent for companies so it's a clear unbalance and we have to tax the rich well thank you so much barbara for your time today and uh, i wish we had more time but thanks again thanks to you okay that's barbara legault from the young feminist movement rebel Top administrators at Toronto's York University have been ordered to answer sensitive questions about an alleged pro-Israel orientation shared by members of a key governing body. The order, issued by the Ontario Superior Court, obligates former York President Lorna Marsden and York University Foundation Chairman Paul Marcus to answer specific questions posed by lawyers representing York history professor David Noble. Noble has sued the administrators for defamation. Noble's $25 million suit against the York University Foundation, Hillel of Greater Toronto, the Canadian Jewish Congress Ontario Region, and the United Jewish Appeal Federation of Greater Toronto, is still proceeding through the courts. 
Back in 2004, York issued a press release condemning a pamphlet Noble wrote and distributed. The pamphlet accused directors of York University Foundation of being pro-Israel lobbyists. Professor Noble, a Jew, said that the release wrongly labeled him as an anti-Semite who was attempting to foment trouble on campus. He alleged that his treatment was part of a pattern of repression at York against those who question Israeli policy in the Middle East. We have David Noble on the phone from his home in Toronto. Welcome, Professor Noble. Thank you. Your lawsuit has become a symbol of the fight for academic freedom. Can you tell us how your academic freedom has been violated by the university's press release? Well, yes. In fact, um, the breach of academic freedom was confirmed in an earlier arbitration case against York University. The arbitrator found that York was in breach of my academic freedom because what I was doing was um, using, uh, exercising my academic freedom uh, to point out the uh, orientation, as you say, the uh, the bias in the York University Foundation um, toward Israel, and I suggested in a flyer that I um, I distributed to my class uh, that uh, this might account for the repression against pro-Palestinian students and activists on campus. As soon as that was released, as you indicated, uh, York University and the York University Foundation uh, and these other organizations, Zionist organizations, Canadian Jewish Congress, United Jewish Appeal, and Hillel, uh, combined forces to condemn me as an anti-Semite, a bigot, a racist, with press releases which were uh, then aired in the, um, in the press, in the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star here, and throughout the globe, in fact. Um, so I sue them for defamation. And uh, that case is now has now been in the courts for uh, for some, more than three years. The reason they attacked me as an anti-Semite uh, was to divert attention from what I had exposed, namely the uh, the connection with uh, with Israel. Uh, and they succeeded um, in diverting attention in the lawsuit in the litigation. Uh, over the last three years, they have steadfastly refused to answer any questions regarding Israel, pro-Israel advocacy, um, their views of, of Israel, um, insisting that uh, these were uh, irrelevant and that the only matter uh, that was relevant was um, Jews and anti-Semitism. Uh, we went to court over the last year, and on February 17th, the court sided with us, declaring uh, unambiguously that these uh, questions were indeed relevant, and ordering the defendants to answer them. Which is my next question. What were those questions? The questions actually, uh, the questions are, are very simple. We were just asking uh, Marcus and Marsden and Marcus as well on, uh, on behalf of the, uh, the foundation. The defendants in this case... Uh, with regard to York University, art is not York University itself, but the York University Foundation, which is a separately, independently incorporated entity, um, as well as these two individuals who are on the board of that uh, of that entity. And the questions were: Are you pro-Israel? And are the members of the board of directors of the York University Foundation pro-Israel? And we went um, down the list and they refuse to answer any of these questions. So that they've now been ordered to identify who on the board's uh, director, board of directors is pro-Israel, who is not, 
and also to indicate their own views on, in this regard. That, those are the questions they have to answer. Okay. But in addition, since the court has now declared that these questions are relevant, it is also declared uh, by extension that they are discoverable, which means we can now um, uh, request documents related to the question. So we have filed a request for all documents in the possession of all members of the board, as well as these named defendants, uh, that pertain in any way to the State of Israel, to any organizations or agencies associated with the State of Israel, as well as any and all advocacy, fundraising, etc., on behalf of the State of Israel. And so you've talked a little bit about the impact of the ruling. Give us some more things about the impact of this particular ruling. Well, what's fascinating and what, what's, what's very com- compelling right now is that the York University Foundation is in contempt of court. The judge in, uh, in February 17th ordered them to answer these questions within 30 days. They are in noncompliance with a court order. Uh, so they are in contempt, and we are proceeding to uh, uh, go ahead with um, a criminal contempt charges against them. We've actually given them until Friday to answer these questions. What's really startling is that um, these entities that are in criminal contempt in, um, include lawyers, the board of directors of the York University Foundation. There are some 10 lawyers on the board. One of them is a former dean of the Osgood Law School at York University. Another one is the former chief justice of the Supreme Court of Ontario. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's astonishing. Um, and their refusal to answer these questions and their defiance of the court in this matter mm-hmm. uh, betrays a, um, uh, a real concern about disclosing information about these ties, which now, um, day by day, appears uh, to loom larger and larger. And so, uh, the next couple of minutes, let's talk about, you know, for those people out there following the case, and even if they're not, hopefully they will now, what's next? Well, um, we'll, we'll see if they answer the questions. If they don't, then we'll go after them and try and send them to jail. Okay. Okay. Um, and, uh, but what, what your, your listeners really have to understand is this is the first and only case in North America in which a person who was attacked as an anti-Semite sued his attackers for defamation. That is what makes this uh, case historic, far beyond the issue of academic freedom. Right. And so I say to those out there, if anyone has ever leveled the charge of anti-Semitism against you, and you are not an anti-Semite, sue them for defamation. Because you, you are doing that now, and you're history in the making. Well, yes, I, I think so. Okay, so this is good. Uh, we're going to wait on this and see what does happen, and we're going to have you back, uh, Professor Noble, to see the outcome. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for your time today. Sure. Great. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. The war in Afghanistan is grinding on with no end in sight. In her visit to Canada last week, U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton asked Canada to stay on in Afghanistan in some fashion beyond 2011 when Canada is scheduled to end its combat role there. We have Stephen Staples, president of the Rideau Institute, an independent research and foreign policy advocacy group, on the phone in his home in Ottawa. Welcome to Alert Radio, Stephen Staples. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. Do you think that Canada has any further role in Afghanistan? And in your opinion, should Canada have been there in the first place? 
Well, I'll start with the uh, the second one first. I was part of a very small group of people that uh, actually opposed Canada going into Afghanistan after 9-11. We had a small coalition called the September 11th Peace Coalition. Uh, it tried to get off the ground in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. And when the buildup was being uh, mounted and the fingers were being pointed at Afghanistan, and we said that, you know, look, uh, the solution to terrorism... Uh, is not a military one. It was the wrong tool uh, to deal with the issue. And while we had some progressive unions and some progressive organizations on side, we did not win the support of the broader labor movement. There was a lot of division amongst progressives over the war. Our American allies and groups that were really very closely connected with the U.S. at the time uh, were were, were shell-shocked. And so uh, that never really uh, took off, uh, but I, 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 do have the, uh, I do have a poster on the wall from that important time, uh, and that's about as far as it got, not much more than a poster, sadly. And here we are a decade later, and Canadian troops are, are stuck there still, uh, fighting a failing war, uh, protecting a, um, a leadership in the Karzai government, that's just absolutely corrupt, and that most of the Western world would like to forget that he stole the election last summer. They're just trying to paper over it. So we've, we're, we're, we're stuck in a quagmire, and, uh, and, and we have no reliable partner. And it's very unclear what the goals are in terms of uh, what we're trying to achieve in Afghanistan. Now, I just want to turn to, to President Clinton's remarks about uh, last week, where she said that you know, we should continue our role you know, beyond 2011, which is the current end date from the parliamentary resolution. It was, a, it was a bit rich on two accounts, I found. First of all, the reason we moved to Kandahar from Kabul in 2006 was because the U.S. took the eye off the ball, and they, they diverted a lot of troops out of Afghanistan to a, a terrible invasion uh, of Iraq. And so Canada, uh, to a large part, was, uh, was picking up uh, U.S. slack uh, in 2006. And when we did that, we had only suffered eight casualties up until that point. Uh, in the last few years, we've now suffered more than 140, proportionately much higher number than any other, other country. On the, on the second thing, it's also rich because even her own president, President Obama, has said while he's putting in a surge of some 30,000 troops, he wants the bulk of them to be gone by the end of 2011, which is the same end date as the current Canadian military commitment. So I think the question could be equally asked of President Clinton. What is the U.S. role going to be uh, beyond 2011? Because even her own president does not seem convinced that there is going to be a, a, um, a military solution to this. So does Canada have a role? Perhaps. I mean, I think Afghanistan could take its place amongst other nations, of which we try to help out of poverty and do development work and try to engage in in, in those you know, nation-building and state-building and institutional-building uh, capacities. Um, but I think it could take the same place as many other countries and other priorities that we would have around the world, and our Canadian forces could be used much more effectively elsewhere. Well, Stephen, I'd like to ask you about the future of Afghanistan, and are you concerned about what would happen if other NATO members follow Canada's example and then the NATO mission just collapsed? Well, many countries are following Canada's example. It looks like you know the the the, uh, the government in the Netherlands has collapsed over the proposed extension uh, of the mission there. 
uh, in their section, um, and so they're probably uh, going to be withdrawing as well. Uh, I think we've seen uh, the end of the war, and, and there will be attempts to try to say, well, what have we accomplished? And we looked at the throne speech uh, from uh, the government recently. You know, they kind of said, well, we prevented the Kandahar province from falling back under control of the Taliban. I guess that, I don't know if that was their intention all along, but that's certainly how the narrative is being written at this point to, uh, uh, to, to, to say what that was all about all that time, all that money and all those lives um, lost uh, in Kandahar province. I think that Afghans need, need to take control of their own country. They need to take control of it back uh, from Western forces. Uh, I think that the government, in some ways, the utterly corrupt Karzai government, uh, has been propped up for far too long by the West. And uh, maybe that's part of the problem, that this large presence of foreign military forces is ultimately a corrupting influence uh, on the institutions as, as it becomes dependent on, on Western force and aid and billions of dollars in order to, to maintain power. Uh, We've we got to remember that... Um, before 9-11, there was a civil war going on in Afghanistan between forces in the north and forces in the south. Uh, the Taliban largely based in the south and the northern alliance. And we came in on one side, the west did. Uh, we made angels out of the northern alliance and made devils out of, the, uh, out of the Taliban when there was devils on both sides, really. So I think a lasting contribution could be trying to resolve that ongoing civil war, which was never finished and is constantly is continually being played out in Afghanistan, and of which we are just, you know, um, another part of that, uh, of that chess match that's going on there. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm speaking to Stephen Staples. He is the president of the Rideau Institute. I'd like to move our focus now beyond Afghanistan to discuss NATO itself. Does it have any useful role to play in the 21st century? Well, I was asked this by the Globe and Mail recently, you know, because the NATO is, <clears throat> is undergoing a review of what it calls its strategic concept. And it, it doesn't happen very often. The last time the strategic concept was reviewed was, was 1990, uh, 1999, uh, and the time before that was just after the end of the Cold War. So this is sort of the main document that puts out, you know, who are we and why are we here and what is our view of the world. Uh, I think, it's first of all, it's a terrible missed opportunity that the Canadian government has not engaged Canadians in discussing NATO and what the future of NATO should be and the strategic concept uh, should, should look like going ahead. Other countries have had very vigorous debates. The U.S., even Poland has, but Canada uh, has not. So I think that's a real missed opportunity. Um, I think that, you know, these days NATO could have some role. Um, I, I'm a multilateralist. I'm an internationalist at heart and I don't throw away multilateral institutions very easily. But that being said, uh, it needs to have a rational assessment uh, and get back to basics. So I think the basics of NATO are to provide, provide for the coordinated defense of continental Europe. And that's what it should get back to. And the fact is there is very few, little, if any, military threat to continental Europe. And so there really is, isn't much of a need for a NATO at this point. So, uh, in our view, what NATO should be is get back to basics, acknowledge that there is no military threat, and basically be put on cold standby. Um, it can become a consultative body, a coordinating role, 
but it should demobilize its active military commands, should end its out-of-area operations like Afghanistan and military ventures outside of Europe. Certainly, it should get rid of its nuclear weapons, which five countries in Europe are now calling for the withdrawal of, of uh, tactical nuclear weapons uh, out of Europe. It needs to, it needs to uh, uh, move on that front. And it sure, certainly should not expand any further. There's been movements to bring in former Soviet republics under NATO. Uh, this would be uh, a huge mistake. So really, the alliance should be put on cold standby. And uh, final question for you, Stephen Staples. Uh, one suggestion that we have read about is that Canada should redirect its entire defense budget to an emergency service capable of providing instant support to countries anywhere in the world suffering from the certain consequences of climate change, for example. What's your opinion about that suggestion, Stephen Staples? Well, I'm not, I, I'm not sure what the specifics of that would, would entail. Certainly, if, it, if it's suggesting that the military be used to respond to those kinds of situations, uh, I think experience has shown us that the military is a very poor instrument in terms of delivering humanitarian aid in crisis response, um, and, and certainly long-time uh, development goals, the, the, there would be very little role for for uh, the military to uh, to play that role. However, we have sort of looked at what are the what are the basic functions of the Canadian forces. Uh, and from, from from our view is, you know, there's there's essentially three roles and the government would put this forward. First is provide for the territorial defense of Canada and I incorporated that as aid to the civil order, you know, disaster response, that kind of thing. The second is contribute to continental defense and the third is contribute to international peace and security. On those three, essentially what we advocate is that in terms of looking at territorial defense, the Canadian Armed Forces would have a role there, certainly providing aid to the civil order in some kind of emergencies, Arctic sovereignty perhaps, but this is very limited, just like our discussion on NATO, it would be a very small role. In terms of NORAD and air defense, uh, perhaps there's a role there in, in a coordination with the U.S., certainly not an integration uh, that we need to be careful that it does not move into an integration, but a coordinating role in some air monitoring and uh, air control uh, uh, functions, uh, that uh, airspace control functions. Uh, perhaps that seems reasonable since people are hijacking planes and are crashing them into buildings, as we know. But and on the international stage, the military should be used as a peacekeeping force. I think we need to get back to providing support for the United Nations. I think Canada, the Canadian government should be looking very seriously at this request for Canadian troops to be contributed to this terribly important mission in Congo that the UN is, is undertaking right now, and that perhaps we can contribute several hundred troops to that kind of thing. So if we're looking at a future role of the Canadian forces, uh, I, I think that's where the focus would be. It would be much smaller than it is right now. It would require much less resources than what it's consuming uh, right now. Certainly the defense lobby would not be very happy uh, with what... Uh, with what we would be putting forward, but I think that it is in line with what Canadians want from our armed forces. Stephen Staples, President of the Rideau Institute, thank you very much for joining us on Alert Radio. My pleasure. Thank you.
Hi, this is Mitch Podolik. This is Music is the Weapon. And today, one of my favorite subjects, trains. I love trains. I've always loved trains. Here is Andy Cohn with Rock Island Line. Rock Island Line on a Dulceola. In case you've never heard of a Dulceola, you have to imagine a very tiny harpsichord-like keyboard attached to an auto harp. It's the weirdest little thing you've ever seen, but it sure does make that pretty sound. A lot of today's show is about a fellow named Casey Jones. John Luther Jones was an engineer on the, on the Illinois Central and he died April 30th, 1900, in a train crash. And he became very famous for it because he was driving the passenger train and it ran into the end of a freight train. And he was so desperate to try to save everybody's life that he gave up his own life. He stayed on the, on the engine while everybody else jumped off. And he died. And he was the only person to die. And Casey Jones has become historically a very much part of folklore and and. Very much part of, of, of uh, there's probably more songs written about Casey Jones than anybody else alive. He certainly, I went through my collection today and I found dozens of them. So here's the first one I heard, and this is the most interesting in some ways because those of you who remember the Almanac singers, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and Bess Haas Lomax and Mill Lampell, and who remember that old Folkways album, that blue one, the Talking Union album, that all of us back in the 1960s learned every song and every word. Well, there's a version of Casey Jones on there. Only this version paints Casey Jones as a scab, as a union scab, as a union busting scab. We cannot find any real references about this at all. But here, just to give you an example of what political thought could do sometimes in a weird way, here's Casey Jones, the union busting scab. The workers on the SB line for strikes are out of call But Casey Jones, the engineer, he wouldn't strike at all His boiler, it was leaking and the drivers on the bump And the engines and the bear and they were all out of plumb Casey Jones kept his junk pile running Casey Jones was working double time Casey Jones got a wooden medal For being good and faithful on the SB line the worker said to Casey, won't you help us win this strike? But Casey said, let me alone, you'd better take a hike. Well, Casey's wheezy engine ran right off the wheezy track, and Casey hit the river with an awful smack. Casey Jones hit the river bottom. Casey Jones broke his blooming spine. Casey Jones 
turned into an angel He got a trip to heaven on the SP line When Casey got to heaven way up to that pearly gate He said, I'm Casey Jones, the guy that pulled the SP freight You're just the man, said Peter, our musicians are on strike You can get a job of scabbing anytime you like Casey Jones got a job in heaven Casey Jones was doing mighty fine Casey Jones went scabbing on the angels Just like he did to workers on the SP line Well, the angels got together, they said it wasn't fair For Casey Jones to go around a scabbing everywhere The angels union number 23, they sure were there They promptly fired Casey down the golden stair Casey Jones, I went to hell applying Casey Jones, the devil said oh fine Casey Jones, get busy shoveling sulfurs What you get for scabbing on the SP line That was Pete Seeger singing lead with the Almanac singers singing Casey Jones, a Union Scab. Now, of course, I'm saying that, that Casey Jones wasn't a scab, and he didn't work on the SP line. He worked on the Illinois Central, and there's some great songs written about him. So let's start with Talking Casey again with Andy Cohen. Casey Jones. He was a mighty engineer. The train was never late. It was never early. It was always on time except for one time and that was the last time because that time he was waiting for train time and his wife must have been having a bad time. She must have felt something was going to go bad wrong. So she went to him in the South Memphis yard where he lay asleep, hollered up into the window of his cab. She said, Casey! Casey Jones! Don't leave me here Casey Jones Don't leave me here Had about 17 little kids They all said, Daddy, Daddy, don't leave us here Daddy, don't leave us here That was too much for Casey He told his fireman to hit the bell Let's go South Memphis Yard. You know, after you get out of the South Memphis Yard, it's right near where Elvis's house is, and you've got a big, long curve, length of track, goes in and out of the yard, about four and a half miles long, goes all the way to Germantown, then it makes a right-handed bend, all the way over to Jackson, Tennessee. That's where Casey was going. Well, you know, every time the train goes in or out of the yard on that track, it's going to push the rails apart just a little bit further. Casey's train goes over that track, it sounds like this. And it hits a straightaway. Picking up speed. Getting some steam, making some good time. Everybody along the track knew Casey by the sound of his whistle. Going along, 
after a while, Casey ran up on some sheep. He blowed his whistle for him to get off the track. They wouldn't get off the track. He had to stop his train and run him off. This is Casey putting on his air brake. <laughs> Stopped his train. He walked along the track to where the sheep's was. He said, "Go home, sheep. You got no business on my railroad track." So the sheep's went home. And Casey turned around. He went walking back to his cab. He's walking back to his engine. He's talking about them sheep 'cause they made him late. Dog on them sheep. Dog on them sheep. Dog on them sheep. And he got back in his cab and he began to run his engine pretty fast. Running his engine so fast, you know he's got to make up his time. He's running his engine so fast, looked like the big driving wheels in back catch up with the little pony trucks in front. Everybody along the track knowed Casey by the sound of his whistle. Coming, they heard him coming so fast till they thought he was gonna have a wreck. Crying, Lord have mercy, save me, Lord. Jones, he was a mighty man, and now he's resting in the promised land. The only kind of music he could understand was a big eight-wheeler under his command. He made the freight train boogie all the time. He made the freight train boogie as he rolled down the Along the line could tell Casey Jones he was a coming to town on a big eight wheeler that was burning the ground. He made a freight train boogie all the time. He made a freight train boogie as he rolled down the line.
He wake up the people all along the line. Oh Lord, how the man made the whistle whine. He said to his farmer, better hold your seat. I'm gonna make this ride and do the boogie beat. He made the freight train boogie all the time. He made the freight train boogie and roll down the line. Roll it, Casey. That was Doc Watson with Freight Train Boogie, a song about Casey Jones, and before that, Talking Casey, done by Andy Cohn. To finish off today, here's a new song that's been rewritten specifically in regards to the Canadian Pacific Railway. Here is Drill Ye Terriers Drill. Every morning at 7 o'clock, you see a gang of terriers working on the rock, and the boss comes around and he says, Keep still, come down to heavy on the cast iron drill. Drill ye terriers, drill. Drill ye terriers, drill. For you work all day without sugar in your tea when you're working on the CV railway. Drill ye terriers, drill. Now the boss's name was Pat McGann. By God, he was a damn mean man last week. Premature blast went off And a mile in the air went Big Jim Goff Drill ye terriers, drill Drill ye terriers, drill For you work all day Without sugar in your tea When you're working on the CP Railway Drill ye terriers, drill Now when we went to tell Jim's wife How poor old Jim had lost his life Says she, we'll take him into town Says we, but Jim ain't yet come down Drill ye terriers, drill Drill ye terriers, drill For you work all day without sugar in your tea When you're working on the CP Railway Drill ye terriers, drill very next day we heard a cry Saw Big Jim falling from the sky He landed on a big rock dump Says he, well that's a darned hard bump Drill ye terriers, drill Drill ye terriers, drill For you work all day without sugar in your tea When you're working on the CP Railway Drill ye terriers, drill Last payday came around Jim Goff a dollar short was found When he asked what for Came this reply You don't fool the time you were up in the sky Drill ye terriers drill Drill ye terriers drill For you work all day without sugar in your day When you're working on the CB railway Drill ye terriers drill And blast And fire And blast And that was Drill Ye Terriers Drill from a Phil Thomas historical recording of the songs that he collected in British Columbia. That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. Keep on picking.
And that is our program for April 8th, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Albee. And we hope that you'll come and listen to us again next week. Our thanks as usual to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension magazine, Saigonic. And Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selena Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer, Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days comes to us from Ben Wood. And, of course, Mitch Podolik with Music is the Weapon. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com.